In this interview, I'm joined by Guogu, Chan Buddhist teacher, author, and scholar of Buddhism. Guogu shares stories of his early training under the mysterious hermit Guanjin, whose city powers were sought after by locals for healing and divination. Guogu also details his decades as the attendee and disciple monk of Chan Master Sheng Yan, including examples of Master Sheng Yan's unusual and sometimes painful teaching methods, and shares how a powerful practice brought about Guogu's stream entry in a moment of profound repentance. Guogu also compares the powerful spiritual presences of his teachers, reflects on the means of acquiring city and why Chan Buddhism de-emphasizes such abilities, and shares the power of humility as a path to enlightenment. So without further ado, Guogu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for inviting me. Well, first of all, thank you very much for being willing to uh, come on the podcast and also congratulations on the release of your latest book, Silent Illumination, published by Shambhala earlier this year in March 2021. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a really wonderful book, um, very beautifully written. And actually, I'd like to ask you several questions about it a little bit later. But perhaps we could start with your biography. Your first encounter with meditation was as a four year old boy visiting a renowned Buddhist monk, Wang Jin, notorious for, among other things, abiding in meditative absorption for days or weeks at a time. Um, mm. I'm wondering if you witnessed that, eating only fruit and never sleeping laying down. I'm wondering if you could talk about your, your time with your first teacher, um, what it was that he taught you. Yes, in Taiwan, so like many, um, many masters during that time, in the 20th century, he escaped the uh, communist takeover in mainland China. He went to Taiwan. And uh, he was uh, quite secluded, lived like a hermit, and uh, you know, built his hut. And basically, people discovered him, built a monastery around him. You know. But um, he was quite distinct, uh, not like anyone that I've, I've met before or since. Uh, in Taiwan, he's known as uh, the fruit monk because he only ate fruit. And um, he was known for his uh, meditative power. Uh, you know, I did not witness any of that. Uh, his uh, meditative absorptions. When I met him, it was already in the early 70s. And, uh, but you know, stories go around and there are other monks uh, contemporary to him that uh, witnessed and that were alive. So these stories I presume are true. Um, I guess because of his diet, his back was always kind of arched, and his bones maybe shrunk a little bit. So he was a small, petite kind of, uh, person. And um, aside from his ascetic practice, he was also known to have uh, several, several of the, the Buddhists recognized um, supernatural abilities. You know, 
clairvoyance, seeing their future, reading minds, understanding the past, and so on. So, so people typically go to him to ask all kinds of questions. You know? And um, you know, his monastery was basically in the woods. The roads were never built. And it was a treacherous excursion to visit him. You know, Taiwan being um, a subtropical place, you know, always rained. Every time we go there, there'll be some rain or just after the rain and the mud, there's no paved road. So the car will sometimes slip back on the edge of the mountain winding road. It's really, really dangerous. A lot of people choose not to even drive up there. So, you know, we, we chose to drive up there, but um, with my family. I remember every time we go there, we would just slide back and it was just very dangerous. When we go there, there would be teams of people gathered around him. And he always sat in this uh, bamboo chair, received people sick, diseased. And he would bless, you know, tap water with the uh, great compassionate dharani inside over it. There would be bottles already prepared. And sometimes he would do it in person. And uh, <clears throat> people get healed. We're talking about like cancer, you know, and uh, all kinds of problems. Uh, not only sickness, but like family problems. So people flocked to him. Um, my family was nearly one among many. But there was a special connection because my mother was a mathematician and she taught at a private uh, high school. And one of her students became his disciple, monastic disciple, was a nun. She became a nun, and she later became his attendant. And because of that connection, we were always able to get very close to him, you know, and uh, consult with him, and uh, just hang out with him on his uh, breaks, you know, and walks at the mountainside. So I would. You know, being a kid, I would, I was uh, very, very much drawn to him. In fact, my childhood memory, uh, childhood memories basically evolve around him, the monastery. I don't remember much of other stuff, just kind of fragment bits and pieces. So we visited there so often, and uh, he was always very kind to me. He taught me how to sit in a very strange way. You know, usually people you know, put a full lotus, put one leg up, and then they put the other leg up, the other leg up. The way he taught me is you put one leg up, and you take, you take the foot from underneath to bring it out and put it here. <laughs> And eventually, he just told me, just put it up here. You know? 
so without hands. You know, so, so his his legs were were like uh, like arms. <laughs> it would just it would just go up perfect. You know? So uh, he was very delighted to see that eventually I could do that too. And part, partly I was just very drawn to him, very kind. I just wanted to please him. I didn't know what I was doing. Just sitting there. He told me to you know, eyes, watch the nose, mind, watch the breath. So I would sit next to him as he you know, greet different people and do his thing. Sometimes during breaks, I would kind of walk with him on the monastic compound. And those are my deepest memory. And those memories are not just a, a cerebral thinking back. There's this pervasive sense of peace in his presence. Very, very gentle. Retroactively reflecting back, you know, different teachers have different presence. It was just as a selfless, uh, spacious, pervasive sense of presence, is peace. No ripples. You smile and teach me this, teach me that. So um, then uh, we went there almost every week until I was 10. We migrated to the United States. And uh, the next time I went back, he was already dead, passed away. And the first thing I wanted to do, I went back 80, 86 or 87. I went back when I did. I knew that he had passed away. So I wanted to see his temple. By that time, it was all embellished. Roads were actually paved, actually safe to drive up there. The parking lot, white, painted white, all the buildings, monastery. But they kept his bamboo chair in the hall where he used to greet people, but they turned it into a memorial hall. And when I saw that going in there, just collapsed, just collapsed to the, to the ground, and just streams of tears, and the flush of memory, but also the feeling of his presence. And, uh, and at that time, <clears throat> when I went back to the state, I began to explore Buddhism seriously. Now, I met my root teacher, Master Shenyan, at age 11. So I really knew how to sit, I didn't know what I was doing, but the posture, the form, and that peace that uh, I was familiar with. With that, growing up in the United States, I met my teacher, and uh, he had another kind of presence, very lively, very sharp, kind of penetrating, 
but he was very adaptive. That's what I mean by alive. So when he spoke to you know, adults, Paul, when he spoke to me, he just came alive, teaching me. He's trying to teach me Kung Fu. Right? Yeah, I know he didn't know Kung Fu. He told me, you know, you walk up the wall, across the hall, come down the other side. I was like, yeah, I want to learn that. And then uh, so he said, well, you have to sit first. I, like, I know how to sit already. Said, oh, yeah, you know how to sit? Let me see. So I showed him without, without hands. And, uh, so he was, you know, me and him were kind of uh, immediately kind of very, very close. I knew this. Uh, this was my teacher. I was able to connect with him. So he saw me grow up. And I wasn't really serious. You know, my mom was in his temple. But when I came back after Master Guangqing's passing, came back to the States, I started to uh, explore more, more deeply. I volunteered in his place and uh, cleaning the monastery just to be close to him a little more. Uh, volunteer the, the Chan magazine, providing pictures and layout. Back then, the layout was not computerized. We actually cut out pieces of paper, the text, and the image, <laughs> prepare everything for the printer, you know. So um, then uh, he saw me kind of growing, growing up from 11 through my crazy days, but I still kept that connection with him. Uh, and then the college, uh, I started doing uh, intensive retreats. And it would be uh, four times a year. And I would, I lived at a monastery in Chinatown, at the edge of Chinatown, and Little Italy. And, uh, went to Queens to his temple. So during the weekday, I lived above the monastery. I would, the exchange was, uh, I would clean the monastery, get groceries for me to stay there. Uh, because of the connection my mom had with the abbot. He was an ascetic too. Very, on, very early on, I had this connection with asceticism. And later on, I lived with this uh, monk who's also known as an ascetic, Master Shouye. He copied the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is uh, 60 fascicles, 60 chapters. Each character this big, he copied it in his own blood from his fingers and the sublingual part of his tongue in isolated solitary retreat in China. And um, so he would he would teach me different different stuff. And he had another kind of presence, very very powerful presence. So uh, yeah, during college, I, I did this and uh, intensively practice, and I uh, decided to become Master Shenyang's uh, disciple, monastic disciple. 
I would say going back to the early, the first teacher, he's the one who kind of planted the seed. Uh, he used to call me, not by my name, he used to call me Dao Hui. Dao Hui. It's the name that he gave me. In translation, Dao, the Dao, the way. Hui means uh, prajna, wisdom. He used to always call me that. I took refuge with him. But usually people take refuge, they get a name, they don't you know, reuse it. The teacher don't even re remember anything. So, oh, Dawei, Dawei is here. It's like he's priming me to, <laughs> to uh, kind of brainwashing me a little bit to take this path. You know? so I'm eternally grateful to him. And that sent me on the course. Very fascinating. Something I've noticed about the way you talk about your teachers, in particular, Guangxing and Master Sheng Yan, is uh, very much often with this referring to their the quality of their presence, this sort of felt sense impact. I've heard you uh, express it in those terms. And also I've heard you express, which is interesting, uh, that one of the main reasons you hung out with them, and it, I think, you know, as you've said in your account, there was an awful lot of hanging out going on, actually, um, was because you liked them. Yeah. You, you liked them as people. There's something about them that you found attractive to be around. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect, um, yeah. likability? Um, yes, perhaps could you say a little more about that, please? Yeah. These people did not have an air around them like a, like a master, you know. Uh, very down to earth, very nonchalant, very accessible. So in their presence, uh, it's just strong. Just people are just drawn, drawn to them. And uh, they had different presences. Continues, very unassuming, very unassuming. You know, he's must be five foot, maybe four foot something, five foot tall, uh, very small, skinny, hunchback. You know, a lot of people um, say that uh, you know, different um, different teachers have a different presence, energy field around them. The important thing is <clears throat> that we should know is uh, it's not like emanating field, nor is it conscious. It's like a jade embedded in rocks. It's like gold embedded in coal or rocks or something. The jade itself, there's no awareness. Oh, hey, I'm jade. Jade is pretty precious, or I'm gold. Totally unassuming. No self consciousness. It's just from their practice, from their practice. 
and the and you and you sense this uh, selflessness. It's very palpable from other people's perspective. They themselves. So because of that quality, is able to just very easy to connect. There's no fixed sense of uh, identity of some sort. So to the kid, like Master Shen Yan, to the kid, child, it's just a kid. To the adult or rich patrons, they respond a certain way. Uh, also, you know, the third monk uh, you know, during my college years, I stayed at the monastery. <clears throat> same thing, same thing. Uh, there was this one person, very likable, uh, accessible, but in the way they respond to different circumstances, instantaneous change. For example, so what, what the circumstances call for, they're able to respond immediately. So one time, this guy, uh, mentally unstable um, person, came in and grabbed the fruit from the altar to start. Started playing baseball. <laughs> he was shooting at the Buddha statue and so on. And uh, Master Shou Ye, Shou Ye, Grabbed his cane. You know, he was different. He was six one six. That's very rare for that generation of monks. Very big guy. Storming down the Buddha Hall with his cane. <laughs> and this Western dude, you know, it was Romanian. And later on, he came to the temple regularly, just to just to be around, just to just to hang out there. But his first appearance. He was just talking to himself and just grabbing stuff. And the uh, magistrate came storming down the Buddha Hall with his cane, speaking Chinese. That's pretty scary. Right? So he's speaking Chinese. And then he kind of didn't know, he was bigger than the Romanian guy. He just ran out. Right? And all, all of us have never seen the master like that. Never. So we were still in shock, whereas him, as soon as he left, came down, he turned and laughed. <laughs> ah, poor fellow. Just, and then just went on. You know? But when he uh, was in that state, it was like a wrathful deity, you know, like a, those Tibetan Buddhist <laughs> wrathful deity, you know, demon-like. You know, but uh, instantaneously, Whereas our cortisol, stress hormones, are still flushed down through the body. Whereas him, just poof, dissipated. Uh, Master Shen Yan, Guangxing, I never saw him like that. He was always peace, like a lucid lake. Master Shen Yan, I saw him too. Later on, I became his attendant. So I was very close to him. The way he responds, uh, like there's no gap, and uh, so that was uh, likable, but 
you know, with Master Sheng and my root teacher, which I studied with for 30 years, something like that. Uh, he, because I was so close to him, when I was actually training with him, I must say, it's not so likable. <laughs> not so likable. He put me through hell. He found my weakness. And he would just really kind of drill in there to expose my sense of me, I, my sense of self. Just right up in the face. This is where your practice is. Publicly. Publicly. So, uh, you know, that, that was precious. Yeah. And the master show year used to call me Xiao Haizi, the hey kid. <laughs> he didn't even bother calling me name. He used to call me the kid. And the uh, master Shen Yan found that out. <clears throat> and uh, he knew that that get me, get to me, get under my skin. Especially, you know, as, as he's a tendon monk, he's a very prestigious position. Everyone had to go through me. Right? And uh, so when he publicly say, hey kid, in front of everyone, you know, that kind of, the kind of self that I saw. You know, he was teaching me, of course, able to kind of work with that. So, so. Mm. Not so necessarily like in the beginning, yes. In the beginning, once he lured me in, <laughs> uh, every instance, you know, he would teach me. I would travel, I would wake up before him, go to sleep after him. I'm with him all the time. So, um, even doing interview, you know, private interview with people. So, I would, I would learn and absorb everything. So, he knew me inside out. So it was that training that was really, really precious and uh, the most important years of my life. I'd like to ask you a bit about your time as an attendant to Master Sheng Yan. But first, I have a, a question about, top two questions actually about uh, Guangqin. First of all, you mentioned his city powers or his supernatural powers. Uh, clairvoyance and so on, uh, healing, making these healing waters, etc. Yeah. How do you think he came to be able to do that? Was it a passive consequence of his uh, awakenings or his enlightenment? Or do you think that he engaged uh, in specific practices to acquire those abilities in order to put them in service of people he'd meet and so on, uh, in the same way a doctor learns learns medicine, you know, etc. Um, yeah, what? How how do you frame that, and uh, how common is that in in uh, advanced practitioners of your tradition? So <clears throat> these powers are not necessary results of awakening. They're more results of samadhi, you know, meditative absorption, that's able to open up and 
also tied to not only meditative absorption, but asceticism, which kind of goes hand in hand with the, especially the people that practice in the mountains in the cave for extended uh, duration, years. So I attribute uh, those cities to, to that. Uh, he was not known as a Chan master, Master Guangqing, in the sense of the Chan school lineage. He was known as Chan master in the sense of Chan as Dhyana. Dhyana. So the Chinese translation of Dhyana is Chan Na. The same character that used Chan. They dropped the na, but so meditative masters, they also called uh, Chan masters. So he was not, he, he didn't receive any transmission of any kind. So I'm sure he had powerful insights and so on, but he was really uh, an ascetic practitioner. Same thing with Master Shouye, the ascetic who wrote uh, 56,000 scriptures. Uh, characters in his blood. He did that over a span of uh, five years in solitary retreats in the uh, mountain in northern China. And uh, Master Shen Yan, my teacher, told me that Shou uh, Ye uh, has uh, clairvoyance, um, and it comes from his ascetic practice. Why would he tell me that? <clears throat> there was a time when I just graduated college, and uh, I was wavering. I had a girlfriend for four years. To leave her, become a monk or not, I was wa wavering. I didn't say anything to show you nothing and you know, he was sitting in his chair you know, seeing me coming in and out monastery he says hey kid what are you waiting for <laughs> i'm like what he says uh, what what good he's a girlfriend what's it good for <laughs> he, the way he framed it was suddenly like i had no idea what I mean, of course, I, I don't want to uh, debunk people' relationship. Or I, don't, I don't. It's not meant to be like that. But in that moment, I couldn't understand what was the purpose of a girlfriend. And he says, "Go and become a monk with Shenya." He did not know. What I was thinking, he knew I practiced there, volunteered there. I didn't tell him anything. And, uh, and I told that to Master Shen Yan. And uh, Shen Yan said, yeah, that's because he's got supernatural power. He can read your mind. I was like, read my mind? Yeah, it's from his, from his um, retreat, solitary practice. And apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently, Monks in his generation, Master Shen Yan and so on, everyone knew that. Everyone knew that. 
So the way I understand it is not necessarily tied to awakening, insight, but through meditative powers, meditative absorption. And how, how would this come to be? Now, in the Chinese tradition, Buddhist tradition, the, of course, Tantric Buddhism exists in China, primarily in the Tang Dynasty. We're talking about uh, 7th, 8th, 9th century. Uh, but it quickly dissipated. It didn't really take root. And because Chan Buddhism as a school really de-emphasizes this, even though this is a natural outcome of samadhi power, really de-emphasize that. So there is, to my knowledge, I don't know of any formal methods to cultivate these powers. Sure, one can go to the meditation manuals of early Buddhism and treatises of Tiantai Buddhism, but no one really consulted that. It's no one really taught that. So I think these powers just come naturally as a byproduct, byproduct of meditative practice. You know, practitioners, uh, seasoned practitioners, to one extent or another, will have something like this. You know, it may not, they may not be able to control it. In other words, it's not always present. Uh, but seasoned practitioners will have something. You know, we were taught when these things arise, you know, don't pay attention to it. Uh, don't flaunt it, definitely. And that you can see in the Chan discourse records, a different pre-modern Chan master really dismisses this. For example, uh, Master Dongshan, uh, co-founder of the Caodong or Soto school in China, uh, living as a hermit, decided to visit this, this other master. And um, when he arrived, <clears throat> when he arrived, they're all prepared to greet him. He was astonished. What? Did you know I was coming? He said, yeah, a Dakini, <laughs> you know, celestial divine being informed us. I had a dream. You, you were going to come. And Master Dongshan, this is a Chan Master, he says, says, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed that even a Dakini can read my mind. That kind of flavor is like, you're supposed to have no mind. So when, when there's you know, thoughts, intention, not, not to say we, have, we don't have thoughts, but kind of in, intentional presence of self, then someone can read you. If you can have thoughts, you can respond. But if you're in a selfless state, no one can read you non-abiding but so he was like he thought back says, yeah i had a thought when i was not so, so these kind of stories like this give you a flavor like okay we shouldn't we shouldn't cultivate any of that 
and other stories like John Masters, uh, this student come receiving the students. Uh, so you've been living in the mountain for so long. How, how do you survive? Uh, um, yeah. Celestial beings bring me food. John Masters, you, know, you should be ashamed of yourself. So, so these stories have um, provided this kind of undercurrent consensus that you don't talk about that. You should be ashamed if you demonstrated. But nevertheless, these meditative practitioners, not Chan, these meditative practitioners, they're not necessarily in the Chan tradition, so they don't really have that, you know, so that kind of um, censorship to that. So it's not that they flaunt it, they're using it to help people, yeah? but they don't, um, they don't hide it. It's attributed to their meditation power. I don't think they cultivated. I don't think methods were going were around instructions, like a doctor, you know, go through med school. I think these are just byproducts. Fascinating. You differentiated there, it seems, between awakening and and samadhi, or meditative absorption or meditative power, and also aesthetic disciplines. And in fact, the writing of the blood, the writing of the sutras in blood, Shoyu's. Uh, ordeal was the subject or that theme was the subject of your PhD at Princeton, I believe. Uh, is that correct? One chapter of the dissertation. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to, to talk with you about that perhaps some other another time, uh, your work in that PhD really, it's absolutely fascinating topic. Uh, however, having differentiated awakening and, and samadhi like that, what were these uh, meditation masters, uh, such as Guangjin, doing? What was their view, if you like? You write in Silent Illumination, right attitude is most important. It shapes our experience of the method. And that's within a wider discussion about Buddha nature and Yogacara philosophy, um, which is somewhat the perspective that uh, Silent Illumination is um, coming from. What would you say was the perspective or the view of practitioners like uh, Guangqin, for instance? What was he what was he doing? Why was he doing that? Wang Qing himself left household life very young and he was illiterate. So he did not have access to the wealth of Buddhist literature to study, to, uh, to avail himself, to understand. And uh, those were turbulent times, you know, even prior to the communist takeover. There's different warlords battling out after the fall of the, the last dynasty, Qing dynasty, 1911, uh, 12. It's just chaos. So, illiterate, uh, poor, Southern small family, you know, people very, very naturally you know, become monks, and and uh, some people just live live um, live at the monastery as as a lay lay person you know, to help out and everything. And he eventually become a monk, and, and he basically just practiced on his own. So he didn't have that uh, doctrinal context, and 
and uh, he practiced. His main method was uh, to uh, Anapanasati, meditation on the breath, and reciting the Buddha's name. Now, these two methods are the most generic, easily accessible method available at that time, and people know about them. And especially the recitation of the Buddha's name. Now, I would say since the 1819, 20th century, this would be the predominant methods. Of course, Chan continued and uh, also influenced Chan Buddhism to uh, tweak this method. Who's reciting the Buddha's name? Turn it into a Wato, a koan. But so pervasive, this method. So that's, that's the method that he taught. I don't, that's why I think, I don't think he really cultivated the cities. You know? I think this just, just came. You know? And uh, he would enter meditative trance. He would find different caves, uh, different berries to eat, different fruits. He didn't bother to grow any vegetables on his own, like many hermits uh, in the Chinese Buddhist tradition. You know, they had a small plot of land and they would plant. They would live in the mountains. He didn't bother to die, so he just lived understanding the berries, the fruits, and observing what animals eat, and um, just practice like that. You know, he was known to also tame tigers. You know, he, he practiced for some time at a tiger's cave. It was empty when he went in. He didn't know, it was, he thought it was a perfect cave. And then he, he woke up, the tigers with the cubs are all back. They didn't really bother him. Yeah, finish my meditation tomorrow. I'll leave. He would just talk to the tiger, supposedly. The tiger didn't bother him. Continue his sitting. It's daylight. Did for a farewell and left. But these are kind of stories that kind of surround him. That was his context: woods, forest, eating berries, like a wild man and uh, illiterate, you know, and because of his karmic affinity with, with the Dharma and meditation. He wasn't an ordinary man. If an ordinary man went to the woods and did all this, maybe nothing would happen. <clears throat> would fear the night when there's no lights around. But because of his karmic affinities, different aspects of his mind opened up. That's, that's opening up a different aspect from Samadhi. That, that's kind of common. Common. Hmm. Uh, remarkable, remarkable. You are, as you mentioned, the personal attendant of Master Sheng Yen for many years, and really with him, uh, certainly his every waking moments, uh, practically, and traveling internationally and uh, accompanying him. And uh, you tell many uh, fascinating stories of that time, including, uh, you mentioned actually already, uh, that he was uh, quite uh, strict with you, quite um, at quite sta uh, high standards and did not uh, hesitate to draw out uh, faults or flaws 
and then expose them or highlight them and often in public in public ways mm -hmm. uh, in one particular perhaps the core uh, uh dynamic that he was drawing out in, in your accounts is what you call self-involvement self-involvement and in your, another of your books passing through the gateless barrier uh, your which are, is your translation of of the gateless barrier mumokan as it's called in japanese um, with your commentary, uh, you, there's this very fascinating s section. It's a, it's a fabulous book, uh, actually, Passing Through the Gateless Barrier. I recommend everyone uh, check that out along with uh, Silent Illumination. But to quote you here, it's the, co the koan you're commenting on is, if on the road you meet a person who has fulfilled the way, greet this person with neither words nor silence. Tell me, how will you respond? That's the koan. And then your commentary, and here's a section of your commentary. Haven't you experienced this? When you're doing things for or in front of a person you think is important, you often mess up or become clumsy. I was like that in front of my teacher. Now that I have my own students, I see this too, with people who can do certain tasks well, but who, for some reason, fumble all over the place when I'm around. They get uneasy, either because they want to do well in front of their teacher or because they don't want to be perceived as being less than first rate. Why? It's not because people don't know what they're doing, nor because they think the teacher is important. It's because their tension comes from discriminating between who is important, who is not, who is the teacher, who is a student. Why do people discriminate then? It is because there is attachment to self. So, you know, many teachers talk about their peak meditation experiences. Um, but I think some of the more fascinating stories you share of your ahas are often seen in this kind of context, in interaction with your teacher or in uh, bumping up against general life circumstances. I'm wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit more about this self-involvement and the ways in which, uh, perhaps through your relationship to your teacher or general circumstances, you were confronted with your self-involvement and how it was you worked with that. Mm. That's very important because that's the heart of practice, uh, self, self-referencing or just simply selfing. Uh, the whole path of the Buddha Dharma is designed to kind of work with it, work with this. Different traditions come at it from different angles. John, daily life. Life is part of practice. It's not confined to a sitting posture. And it is through the dynamic interaction, the spontaneous circumstances, and in our responses that the self manifests. When everything is at peace, not threatened, you think everything's fine. It's only when circumstances changing, and that's the that's the beauty of working with a, with a teacher. Sure, intensive retreat are very important. They establish a good foundation for practice, but it's really in the interaction. So <clears throat> there are so many circumstances that um, you know because. Being so close to my teacher, he, he knew me inside out, how I would respond to things. And 
you know, my self-involvement, <clears throat> especially during the uh, novice years, you know, the, the first few years with him. Um, it manifests absent-mindedness. I would, you know, when we go on trips, I will remember my things, but I wouldn't remember his things. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, my job was to take care of him, you know. So, and uh, being the youngest in the monastery, you know, everyone loved me. They kind of babied me, you know. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. And he knew that. But that's another kind of fox's tail that he was able to catch. So every once in a while, he just poke me, you know, poke me, reveal the fox's tail to me. Um, like this one time, you know, in the Buddha hall, chanting. And, um, you know, I love chanting. And because my chanting, I learned it from Master Shouye, this other style very melodic and this tradition from mainland China. So it's different from Taiwan. <laughs> so I would chant the sutras in that way and everyone was like, oh, that's so good. God, that's so good. Chanting. And then at the end of the one morning, right? You know, the master is very quiet. You know, the whole hall chanting is finished. The master waved and leave. Master saying, walk by me with the first one, second row. And the, the hall is open, so it reverberates. So everyone's here. This right? he wasn't speaking loud; it's just the echoes. And he says, "Guru, your chanting is uh, pretty good." And I just fell right into that trap. You know, that's the genius of charm masters. They draw you in, and then they go for the kill. Right? So I was like. Thank you, Shifu. Very proud. It's especially that he, he didn't stop there. He drilled it even more. He says, especially the four great vows, you know, save all beings. So beautiful. <laughs> and I was joining my palm. Everyone heard this. And then he starts laughing. So I was laughing. He says, four great vows, save all beings. <laughs> you can't even... Remember things for one sentient being, your teacher. And then here you are chanting, save all beings. Just kind of drop the bomb and just left. And I stood there. Tears just come out. I was frozen. And that hit home. That hit home. Everyone just exited a single file. I was just left. At that time, it, I didn't know where I was. It was just sense of contrition, humility came over. And when I came to, I rushed to my teacher's room. I got down on my knees, Shifu. This is where I address them. I will never forget anything. I will always serve you. I will take care of you. From now on, 
that crescendo changed something in me. And then he says, he looked at me sitting, I'm kneeling. Yes. We'll see. <laughs> and he says, uh, you know, you need to learn to take care of one person. Get out of your shell. Learn to take care of one person. Then you can learn to take care of Sangha. Then you can take care of, you can see what the society needs. And you can know what needs to be done, what can be done. That, that humility opened me up and his words came in. Prior to that, just, we're just young, early 20s, we're just involved in our own thinking, our own ideas of what practice should be, how I should practice, you know, taking care of it. That's my job. That's my job at the tender. Whereas practice, you know, that's meditation. You know, every time, every chance I get, I would just go to the Chan Hall. Sometimes I would sit like four or five hours a day while everyone else is working. If I'm not attending here, I'll just go right. Sometimes like eight hours. Deluded understanding what practice is. Humility was the key that saved me. And it anchored my practice. And later on, my insights and opening was also humility. So to me, uh, it's not letting go, it's more like offer. The same thing, two sides of the same coin, really. Offer. A sense of humbleness. So you know, these these pointings, he was he was so good at it, you know. Spontaneous, in the moment, exactly what I need to hear, and he would utilize the circumstances, just you know, draw me out, go for the kill. And when he killed too much, sometimes he would do that. <laughs> or he kind of pushed too much, he will always, uh, always kind of console me with something nice. This is his skill. <laughs> like, like one time, <clears throat> he got me so wild up because it was just public, public humiliation. Okay, he want to see what kind of self-attachment, you know, what kind of self is there? <clears throat> he told me to get camera to, for PR purposes, we got to take pictures of him in lecture and you know, all different. He, he told me to do that. I go get a camera, I take pictures and, and you know, when he's on stage, got on stage, he used me to break the ice. He's like, look at that kid taking a camera as if he knows what he's doing. Ha 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 ha, everyone laughed. We're talking about hundreds of people, and I'm just like, take down my camera, went up to my room, <laughs> it's like, forget you. I don't want to be here. I don't want to take camera. I don't want to take pictures of you. I went up to my room, and I started punching my, my pillow. <laughs> it's just like, why did you always do that? And then uh, next day, 
it's like a it's like a father you know push you too hard a little bit and the next day give you a little candy a little chocolate candy says Guagu, you know someone donated this robes for me this the fabric come to my room after breakfast the breakfast robes very nice fabric Guagu. I think you need new robes. Maybe I can make new robe for you. So I was like, oh, he still cares. <laughs> so it's just this back and forth. Partly was my age growing up, like a young person, you know. But he wanted to show me in real time, in real life situations. What is the self? And that was precious because usually when people read books, what the self, self attachment, you know, blah blah blah, la di da di, pointless, no relevance to what how it actually works, the mechanisms. Yeah. It's the sense of having, lacking, gaining, losing, recognition. rejection in those live situations so i came to know in a very live way what self-attachment is uh, uh, it stopped when i was 26 <clears throat> when i was 26 uh, But um, then I knew what self was. What? Uh, what is it like without self? What is it like with self? So he was able to plant a seed. To how to work with it, and how I work with it was humility, humility, and I had a practice tied to it. And that is repentance practice. I love meditation. I meditated all the time, but it wasn't really meditation. It was repentance, prostration practice, you know, full body you know, uh, bows, you know, prostrations. Uh, so I did that you know, hundreds of times a day and uh, repenting for Um, my wrongdoings, self-referencing, and preemptively for what I might be doing. So past, present, future, always vigilant. And uh, so that's how I, I work with it. Um, I, I, this is something that I still do today. Fascinating. And you've recounted from that incident with the chanting and the critique, if you like, of your absent-mindedness in your job as an attendant, out of that came a different way of viewing that job and uh, taking it actually as uh, a practice, um, yeah. really. And uh, yeah. I suppose both as the method and as the metric for the practice and even developing uh, you, you, you've told this story of developing this uh, five-syllable mantra that you had yeah. to, to help yourself remember all the various different things. 
that you had to keep track of, like, you know, his clothing and is there a draft in the room and etc, etc. Very interesting indeed uh, that you responded in that way. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned humility is key here. Humility is key. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. You also mentioned that uh, your insights, and presumably by that, you mean your spiritual insights, such as Kensho, this this sort of thing, um, realization, uh, sort of insights, uh, also came from humility. Uh, I'm wondering if you're able or willing to talk about that aspect also, uh, your own um, insight, uh, awakening in that sense, seeing through uh, the self, uh, as I think you've put it elsewhere. I'm wondering if you could uh, perhaps talk a little bit about that. So both humility and how it was that your insights have sprung from that. Hmm. Humility. It's not a, a static notion. There are different circumstances and uh, different shades of understanding, I, I guess, different shades of practices. But there's a core to it. There's a core to it. And uh, it's, it's just the opposite of selfing. The self-referential way of seeing things, understanding things. This humility is putting down what we think things ought to be and really attuned to what needs to be done, what can be done, what is needed. So very much in tune. So my teacher was my method. In tune, first I began with his you know, physical needs. Then slowly his, his heart, his intention, you know, what is his vision, the significance of that? So I began to kind of be integrated into me. So his heart, my heart, like before he would say things, like I would, I was so attuned to him, you know, I would understand. He would look at me, like if something happened, he would look at me. I would, I would know what, what needs to be done, you know? So, so that required me to just put everything. And I was his translator. All of these things kind of jailed, you know, because as a translator, you definitely cannot have wandering thoughts. If you have any wandering thoughts, you just, you won't for, you, you definitely forget different passages. So sometimes he would, he would forget that he's talking for like five, 10 minutes. You know, I'm sitting there, I had to tug his robes. <laughs> he translate, you know. So I was, I was watching in tune with exactly what he says, uh, how he says things, why he says things, his intention behind it, where is it coming from? And um, that was part of the part of the practice. And my method at that time, I was one of his earliest students to practice silent illumination. 
my method, my meditation method was also openness. It's not that type of concentration that's kind of one-pointed. It's a kind of concentration that's just absence of wandering thought. So presence, clear. Right? So I would be in that state while I translate for him. And in daily life, I would just in tune with everything. So he became my method, he became my life. And how is that tied to humility? Humility does not necessarily mean uh, always humble, no, 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 you go first, or yeah, I'm nothing. Sometimes a humble person can have a very strong sense of self. It's just their personality. So humility is directly connected to absence of selfing self-referential tendencies. So yes, it could manifest as contrition, a sense of you know, remorse or humbleness, but in daily life, it simply manifests as just uh, being in the moment, in connection for me, putting down this, in connection with my teacher. Right. Now, what's needed to take care of one person, right. the Sangha, or anyone that I met. Right. So, that also um, led to uh, my first awakening, potential. <clears throat> but before I say that, I want to provide a caveat for this. <clears throat> Many people seek experiences that the only reason why they practice. And uh, when people talk about it. But to talk about it, it's a little bit silly. Uh, a little bit silly. Because <clears throat> you're talking about it as a thing, right? as an experience, something that happened. Meanwhile, uh, at least the Buddhist, Buddha Dharma awakening, which is none other than Chan, Zen, Song, okay, is the recognition that uh, it's, it's not, the whole thing is not about you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so the whole thing is recognized that all beings already free. So it's not like, oh, I'm free, but then they are not free. No. Anyone who has that experience probably don't know what they're talking about or not Buddha Dharma experience. So to reify that into like a thing and then talk about that, a little bit silly, a little bit silly. So let me say it so it's useful for people, and that is to come at it from humility. Humility? That's a practice. That's useful. <clears throat> so the takeaway, hopefully, is not the Kensho, but the humility part. Okay. So I've always traveled with my teacher. But there are things that, you know, even though I was tuned to him, you know, it was my life, it was my practice. You know, I still had kind of self-grasping, 
habit tendency. That's what self is. It's not a thing. Originally, there's no thing. So it's just habit tendencies that manifest in body, speech, and you know, thoughts, and so on. So one summer, he said to me, uh, I'm not going to bring you back to Taiwan. And I said, why? Why? He looked at me. I looked at him. He said, it's like a knife goes into this. Have you seen how the nuns been looking at you? I knew exactly what he was talking about. You know, every, I was the youngest, everyone pampered me. I enjoyed that. But there were several nuns who the boundaries are not that clear. And I like that. I was in my 20s, you know. So he said that. And I, I said, okay. That was the first time I left my teacher. All this time I've been relying on him. And he left me. I had a lot of things to do. Stayed in New York, practice. But what he said, those last words, repent, repent. So I worked myself up into this natural sense of wonderment. It wasn't even really wonderment, it was just. I couldn't get out. I couldn't get out. Wonderment could be like, what is it? You know, what remains? You know, uh, with regard to koans, koan, but the flavor was the same. How did I get myself into it? Good. Contributor, I'm contributing to the problem of the sangha and my own vexations, and I did not see it, did not choose to see it. As a monk, how could I do this? So, I just, it wasn't anything serious, but one nun and I exchanged letters when we were, you know, these letters are innocuous, but something is there. You'll write your, three months later, you'll, you'll see me, you know, I'm with my teacher. Three months in New York, three months in Taiwan, but between, she will write me. I kind of knew what's going on, but I wrote back, you know, so. This guilt, this guilt, it's like a snowball just engulfed me. Somehow, you know, I start reading the Buddhist sutras, start reading sutras, like, and I came across some stories uh, that really got me uh, feeling great remorse. And uh, I started doing something that I knew I should do. 
repentance. <clears throat> repentance. And I prostrate myself 500 in the morning, 500 in the evening. And during the day, I just exhausted myself, exhausted myself. And I remember, so months would go by. I remember a teaching that my teacher gave me that saved me. He asked me one time, what is the mind for the way? Doshin, the Japanese would say doshin. Chinese would say, would say doshin, dao, the way. Xin, kokoro, heart, mind for the way. What is that? I start blabbering some text from the sutras. There's no. Body like a rag, mind like a mirror. That's Daoxing. So I exhausted my life. Every work that other people don't want to do. Clean the toilet, you know, do this in the monastery, go out, teach at the Cooper Union, NYU, different university, Buddhist clubs. I used to hate that. I detracted from my own practice, right? Very selfish. I just said, I don't care about myself anymore. Offer, 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 repent, 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 repent. And because I didn't care about myself, I put myself down, that humility, that sense of wonderment. That overwhelmed me, or you could say everything just collapsed into it. Day in and day out, I would be in that. Started to diminish, started to diminish. I started to have this peace. And within that, there was peace. This is a very unique state. It's not this kind of angst, overwhelming, what is it, what is it? If there's a pervasive peace within that, yet something stuck, all I knew was something felt stuck. There's this peace. Every time I would, <clears throat> Well, prior to that, for years I would I would practice uh, sleeping, sitting up. But uh, during that time, I was so exhausted, manual labor, you know, doing all kinds of things that require thinking, publications, editing, so going out to do these. Uh, meditation clubs at different universities. I was just collapse at the end of the day, just collapse. Next day was wake up, same thing. But there's this peace. And then one time, I, my room was next to the meditation hall. So I saw the meditation hall on the way to room. I haven't sat in months, you know. Other people, I was ashamed. I, I had no right to sit, just prostrated when everyone was sitting. So I felt, I'll just sit for a little bit. Just in my posture, relaxed. As soon as I grounded myself, everything fell away. Body, mind, world fell away. Clarity.
clarity without a reference point. And this clarity, for the first time I knew, this clarity is not what people think clarity. People think your mind is so clear. Nothing to do with that. Actually, nothing to do with that. The difference, like, you know, what people think about clarity is more like, you know, you clean the glass, speak and span, clear. You, know, you see through it, transparent. You know. This clarity was, there's no reference, already clear. It's like no window at all. It's always been like this. No reference point in everything present. I don't know how long it lasted. I wrote a letter to my teacher. We had fax machines back then. <laughs> fax it to him. He faxed it back. Says, very good. Talk to you when I get back. He gave me rough translation into English. <clears throat> Uh, nothing holy. Don't make a big deal. <laughs> Beautiful. But nothing moved. So those words, it is no big deal. And it lasted for uh, the rest of the time before he came. Came back and afterwards. So couple of months and the uh, first night he came back you know i picked him out of the airport next day morning chanting i was doing the wooden fish no 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 during that whole time you know from the letter to when he came back was like maybe a month month and a half <clears throat> I was in that state. It's like um, no reference point, yet everything is done. So the wooden fish, for example, was that the wooden fish hit itself and the sound reverberates. When I go to the bathroom to pee, it's like a dialogue between the pee and the toilet. It's just beautiful. In the, in the world, people arguing, this beautiful, uh, pervasive peace and freedom. And he he uh, called me right after the morning service. Go, go, let's go talk. So we sat down. I just said to him, it's all good, clear. He was so happy. I never saw him that happy. It was like, it's like, a, it's like a mother giving birth to a child, like he's claiming it. <laughs> he was very happy. He, says, he started telling me how to refine it. Samadhi, prajna, simultaneous. And, uh, and so on. And, uh, he says, uh, says, seven lives, seven lives left. So I'm like, seven lives, that's Shatapana, right? That's 
dream enter. He says, yeah. He says, John, uh, awakenings <clears throat> can't really match a one to one, but basically, if it's substantial, southern line. If you're lazy, he says, if you're, if you're lazy, uh, if you're diligent, sooner. But of course, you travel the Bodhisattva path. I knew what he meant, I guess, which means uh, you can come, at, come and go at will. At least this is the Buddhist paradigm. This is how they frame it. Growing up in the West, uh, we come at will. I don't, I don't really know what that is. I didn't really care at that time. He told me that. And he gave me an instruction. Your entry point was repentance, humility. That's why I gave you the name, Guagu. I don't know if you know. My, my name, Guagu, the Gu means a valley, empty like a valley. Because my lay name was always at the peak, <laughs> Yongfeng. So he's put me right down to the bottom, humility. So that is your path. So I took that to heart. He says, continue in that fashion. So, you know, there have been subsequent ones, but that one was uh, not, the, not the most powerful one, but the most powerful one was also humility. It's amazing. It's amazing. You want to hear about that one? Of course, <laughs> of course. What do you think? Humility. The takeaway is humility. Okay. So that one was 2007, 2007, seven, six. I don't remember. 2006, 2006. <clears throat> His body was gravely ill, going through dialysis three times a week. He wasn't able to travel. He went back to Taiwan. That was the last time he came back. Uh, you know, anyone was able to see him in the West. So went back to Taiwan. <clears throat> so I went to see him. So, kidney. Yeah. Take my kidney. You can take, you can take my kidney. You can take both if you want. He says, unethical. An old man like me take a young person's? No, it's all good. Just leave it. So he says, you know, stay for a few days. And when I found out that he, you know, he couldn't come back and everyone was alarmed, all his students in the West. So I went back, rushed back. And then, Told me to stay for a few days. When he left, I said, Shifu, I'll bring all your you know, Western Dharma teacher in training students. I'll bring them back. He says, Yes, that, that'd be nice. Be nice. Came back, did the retreat. <clears throat> he was already unable to move, he was in wheelchair. Uh, he could walk, but it was just more convenient on wheelchair. 
did a 49 day retreat. And uh, I think that you know, people can do seven days at a time. Yeah, you don't have to, because most people can't take off work of 49 days. So seven, uh, sevens. <clears throat> so by the early 2000s, he had already told me to use Koan, Huato method. He told me to change, because all those years I've been working with silent illumination, he says, no, you're going to master Huato. Forget about that. Use that approach. So that's what I was working on during that retreat. Great conviction. All the prerequisites. Great, great conviction, faith. Great vows. Great ferocious determination. And great doubt. These are the four typical uh, prerequisites. Yet, the sense of wonderment, the doubt sensation with regard to my Huato uh, <clears throat> was not con continuous. I offer my life. That's the way he taught us to practice. Offer your life. If you die, fine. Tuck you under the altar, your corpse. After the retreat, take it out <laughs> so everyone going there was ready to die so i gave everything yet i couldn't understand why my uh, sense of wonderment the Tao sensation was fragmented you know so it wasn't seamless <clears throat> until then so this has gone on for over a week every day i see the frailty of his body getting out of the wheelchair, attendance, sitting on his seat, give the evening Dharma talk. It was so, uh, painful to, to see that. And, uh, one night he was talking about repentance. Humility. And that brought, brought everything together. It was like a missing puzzle for me. Why? Because I see this man that I know since I was 10 offering his life. That's why his body is like this. He traveled back and forth, back and forth. In America, he wasn't that famous, although all the Chan Zen teachers secretly read his books. You know, but he wasn't really famous. He had maybe a handful of Western students. For us, he toiled his life. He came back in Taiwan, thousands. In the West, just a few handfuls. Why should he come back for us? He did that for 30 years. And I felt such remorse, shame. What have we done? What have we done? Except worrying about our practice and doing this and that. Just, he gave his life. 
And he's talking about humility, repentance, about how he feels when, he's, when he sees his students. He's not capable enough to, to bring them to full, to full fruition because of limitation with his body now. And, can, and I'm like tears drain out. And that night, That was the last ingredient. Great faith, great vow, great ferocious determination, great doubt, and that great humility that put everything together. And I was, humility has a great, great function of diminishing self. Right? You want to get something. Humility offer this to the cushion, to the John Hall, to this life. What is it? What is Wu? The dog can put in nature. Wu. Japanese say Wu means no. This no is not yes or no. It's not that no. It's unfathomable, impenetrable, just don't know. That just collapsed it. So throughout for a couple of days, I was into that. Until the head monk, during the day, my teacher couldn't lead a retreat, the head monk did. Master Guaru, my older Dharma brother, <clears throat> screaming, hollering at everyone. Fast walking meditation. Everyone just running. John Hall slams the incense stick board. Stop. It's like thunder. All the, the whole John Hall roaring with that. Everyone running on wood. This continuous sound. You're running. You don't even know where you are. Slams it. When he slammed it, I lost everything. I didn't know where the hell I was. Everyone stopped. I kept running. <laughs> so I would just keep on running. I ran. I didn't. I didn't know where I was. I was just, bam, just in this abyss. No color. No shape. No inside. Outside. Me. John Hall, others, I didn't know where the hell I was. Kept on running. running, running. He, he just went up stairs to his room, just left it, right? And the timekeepers keep on, they didn't know, they must, I don't know what they thought. I didn't talk to them. But all I knew was, what? It wasn't even the phrase, it was just, I was just in that. <laughs> Kept on running. I knew the body was running. But it's as if having no body, and it was just, don't know. I don't know how long I ran for. Suddenly I stopped. And I went to the timekeeper, which was a nun. I went right up to her, like, must be this close. Went up to her face, where is Guru? The head monk. She says, she went, Upstairs, 
ran upstairs, knocked on his door. He opened the door and he's half dressed, t-shirt, pants, short, stocky fellow. I said, I don't know. I, I don't know what is woo. I don't know what is woo. He says, look at me, take a look. He says, put it down now. That single word, put it down now. It's like a flush of drenched sweat, completely drenched out. And remember what I said about Master Show yeah? It's like the adrenaline, cortisol flushing, suddenly it's like peace. Usually people need time to, you know, for the cortisol to kind of flush out or chemicals in the body. I was in this complete engulfed nonsense. We don't need that. We don't need gradual. Suddenly everything had peace. There's no trace of I was running and sweating and panting. You don't need any of that. For normal people, maybe physiologically, they have to gradually slow down. Not at all. Everything dropped away. Total peace. Prostrate to him. He says, Good. Go outside and take a walk. I said, Yeah, okay. Went downstairs. Another, another um, uh, monk in charge, my older Dharma brother. I went up to him, just hugged him. He says, he says to me, <clears throat> they were walking the grass field at that time. He says to me, difficult, isn't it? And I said, easy. I don't think he knew what, what was happening. And uh, he smiled and I smiled, hugged him. He laid on the grass. Yeah, laid on grass. Everyone's doing walking meditation and stuff. I got up in the evening. Dharma talk again, my teacher, next day. The end of the second week, the 14th day, went to my teacher. I have to go to Japan now. <clears throat> that was scheduled to go to Japan, do some research on blood writing, <laughs> actually. And um, so I said, I had to go. I told him about my experiences. Went to Japan, decided to go to Myoshinji. Myoshinji, <clears throat> Temple of Mind of Sublime. Myoshinji, Ming Zaizen, and uh, Noritake Shunan Roshi is there at uh, one cloister in the monastic complex. So, so I, I went there in my shorts. Said, Can I see the child? Can I see the Zen master? And my poor Japanese. The monks is like, who the heck are you? <laughs> Do you have an appointment? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I told him, I had some, some experience. I just finished a two weeks retreat. I have some experience. 
I wanted to maybe talk about it with him. And says, "Okay, hold on." And uh, so we had a nice conversation. Nice conversation. <coughs> I found out Noritake Shunam was actually born in Taiwan. He was he's Japanese, but he was born uh, during the colonial period. The Japanese took over Taiwan for 50 years. He was actually born in Taiwan. He told me, he gave me some presents. His fan wrote some words for me. It was a very nice, very nice meeting. It was the first time I spoke with a Japanese Zen teacher. I wanted to kind of touch base. Actually, I wanted to see Myoshinji is supposed to be this <clears throat> great monastery. I wanted to see who's the, who's the Zen teacher there. So very fortunate. His schedule was open, actually. And he was willing to see me. So we had a nice conversation, heart to heart. And uh, I told him about the experience and asked me about Huato. They're not used to doing Huato. They do koan practice, you know. So he said, yeah, I heard about that kind of approach. So, but uh, derailed a little bit. Anyway, the point is humidity. Humidity. That was, that's for me. That's for me. Yeah. So the takeaway would be, there are different ingredients, yeah. but we have, in order to make it alive, you have to connect it to your being, connect it to what works for you in a, in a genuine, honest, ruthlessly honest way, as long as you pour your whole being into the practice. No reservations. Don't hold back. And the proper guidance, then you will find a way. So for me, it was humility. Other people, maybe something else. Yeah. Thank you. Marvelous. Very wonderful indeed. I'm aware of the time now. I'd really like to, uh, if you're willing, perhaps talk again. There's still a lot we could uh, talk about. I have many questions, of course, about your book, Silent Illumination, and also uh, other questions ar around the themes of your teaching. Uh, but uh, this has been remarkable. Perhaps I will end on one question uh, that I think perhaps finishes, uh, to an extent, some of the themes that we've been discussing today. We've, we've, uh, you've shared about this profound relationship you've had with Master Sheng Yan as his attendant and student over these many years. And you're also talking of his illness around uh, 2006, 7, 8. And I'm curious for you, having uh, been so close to him for so long in such a profound way as you've described, can you say something about the passing of your teacher and how it's been now 12 years later? How has the time been these last 12 years after his death? Thank you. He was my father. Uh, although my physical body 
came from my parents. He opened my eyes, my Dharma eye, and my life direction, uh, meaning. It was him who provided that. So, 2006, he couldn't come back to the West. <clears throat> I went back to see him. 2007, did a retreat, brought all of his students to see him. And uh, into 2008, I kept contacting him through letter. Early 2009, he passed away. I, the last letter I wrote to him was Shifu. Well, you know, I didn't want to make the mistake that Ananda did. <laughs> I don't know if you know the story. Shakyamuni Buddha uh, hinted at Ananda about his possibility of entering to Parinirvana. And Ananda did not ask him to stay. That was one of the flaws of Ananda. And uh, so no one requested him to stay longer. So he entered into Parinirvana. So I knew that story. So I said, Shifu, my last letter, Shifu, please stay. Please, this world needs you, everyone, and still benefit from you. And uh, I was in school at that time. So I said, Shifu, I'm still in school. I can't leave. Please, at least, uh, I want to see you. At least wait till, you know, my spring break or whatever, so I can come back and see you. <clears throat> of course, he passed away early February. Uh, and I left school. <laughs> uh, When I saw him, I said, so his passing away was a, was a momentous moment in, in Taiwan, actually. And the president showed up, and the previous president showed up. You know, actually, the first person that showed up was the president when he, when he found out. I don't know how he found out. The monastic officers let him know. And it was in the news, was, so I went back after he passed away. And I heard from the attendant monks that he was really not doing too well. But I couldn't go back right away before he passed away. I went back after he already passed away. And I saw him in the Buddha Hall. Yeah, his, his casket. He passed away uh, lying on the right side. <clears throat> So his corpse, 
That's all hat. It was uh, this is emptiness. Yeah. This emptiness filled the whole room, and it wasn't the emptiness like can show emptiness. This was this was emptiness and grief. You know, like a part of me, a part of him, a part of this Dharma drum mountain. Absent. So we did vigil uh, with a monastic and lay people together. We did vigil for, uh, they did it for 49 days <clears throat> in meditation. You know, in our tradition, we didn't really you know, chant Amitabha's name or anything like that, which is very popular in Chinese Buddhism you know, for rebirth or whatever. There may have been some ritual like that, but really we just all sat in meditation, rows and rows of monastics and lay people. And we did visual. So however long people can do it, that's how, however they did it. So there's alternating time. That also changed me because Yes, I was one of his close disciples, and but my path up to that time was academia. Academia, you know, I, I practice myself. I offer my life to his mission and endeavors, whatever he wanted to do, fine, get it done. Um, so that was what I intended to do. But when he passed, coming back to the States, I felt uh, if I don't share his teaching as my way to repay the gratitude towards him, I would, it would not be right. It would be, we would have wasted his time, wasted all those decades. So, I decided to repay my gratitude to my teacher by sharing the little that I know, his teachings, you know, uh, articulated in my way, accessible to people. Uh, I was his translator. You know, so I, I speak English fluently, so I can just directly just share with people. So that was, that's my vow. So this life, I'm here to repay my gratitude. So my books, retreats, in my heart is all dedicated to him, so that his his legacy will continue. Of course, he doesn't need any of that. But uh, my part as a disciple, I do my part. share the teachings. Even though the way I teach is different than him, if I were to share exactly the same, like regurgitate what he says, then I would, that would be wrong, wronging him. So, uh, since then, all these years, I, I, uh, for me, it's just repay gratitude. 
that's what that's what I do. Marvelous. This has been uh, just a really incredible interview. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. We'll meet again. I hope so. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.